The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. Here on The Christian Publishing Show, we've had episodes about protagonists, those characters who want something so much that it drives the plot forward. We've also talked about villains, antagonists who get in their way. But stories do not live on protagonists alone. Side characters, supporting characters, whatever you want to call them, they play a vital role in your novel. And if you don't have interesting side characters, it is going to be a lot harder for your story to be an interesting story. So that is what we're going to talk about today. How to have your secondary characters be interesting without stealing the show. Our guest today is a Christie award-winning author, and she writes for readers who expect the unexpected in novels. She's the best-selling author of more than 150 books in multiple genres, including the well-known children's picture book, A Tale of Three Trees, which has sold over 5 million copies. In fact, she has written so many books that when we built her website, we invented my book table just to solve the problem of how many books she had written. Angela Hunt, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Well, thank you. And I didn't know that about my book table. I'm, I'm so glad I have it. It makes it so easy. <laughs> yeah, in fact, for a long time, you had a special version. Since you had like a pre-alpha, we made a version just for you. And then when we upgraded you to the one everyone else was using, we had to like redo it because we didn't build it initially to be a public product. It was a tool for solving a very specific uh, challenge. It's like, how do you solve a problem like Maria? And how do you solve a problem like an Angela Hunt who's written 150 <laughs> books? <laughs> I love it. I love it. So we're here to talk about side characters. And there are a lot of different kinds of side characters. you got sidekicks, love interests, uh, guides, supporting characters. So walk us through the different kinds of side characters and how you use them as a novelist when you're telling a story. Okay. Well, first of all, um, I think the thing we need to stress foremost is that a novel is one person's story. There will be other characters in that book, of course, but if they have nothing to do with the hero slash protagonist, whatever you want to call him, um, then they really don't belong in that story. Because a novel has to be one person's story, and all of the, the supporting cast, the sidekicks, characters, whatever we want to call them, they have to have something to do with the protagonist. So we're going to talk about a little later about some of the fancy academic or mythological terms for some of these characters. But when I start to write a novel... I just sort of, well, I start with my plot skeleton, which um, is a metaphor I developed some time ago for teaching plotting. And I take my number one character and I say, okay, something happens to him um, and he's dealing with a problem. And so who is involved with him dealing with that problem? So I need those characters. And one of the first things I do is set this character in a family. Um now, not a huge family, just somebody in a family to interact with, either a spouse, um, a sibling, parents. But have you ever noticed in children's stories how many times the parents are absent or on vacation or dead? 
They're just gone. And the reason for that is because parents get in the way of a child's story because children's stories are all about children independently trying to reach a goal. And so if you've got a parent who steps in and is constantly saying, well, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that or you've got to be home by seven o'clock, then that sort of, you know, puts a damper on the whole thing. So when you are putting your character in a family, limit it to the number of people that are absolutely necessary to the story. Yeah, it's kind of like when you're writing a thriller uh, in the days of cell phones, every thriller author has to grapple with the challenge, why don't they just call the police? <laughs> right? It's absolutely. Because like, everyone's got a phone in their pocket. Why not call the police? There's a thousand different ways of solving this problem, but you have to have a way to solve it because if all you have to do or all the protagonist has to do to overcome the problem in the story is call the police and they come and arrest the bad guy, well, now there's no story. And parents often serve that same role in a children's story. They're so powerful. They're so all-knowing contextually. Right? Like there's in the eyes of my two toddlers, there's no problem in their lives that I can't solve. Like when they ask me a question and I say I don't know, they they look at me like I'm lying. <laughs> as far as they're concerned, like well, obviously our parents, mom and dad, they know everything there is to know, and you know eventually they will grow out of that view. But there is such a power um, and knowledge differential that it's hard to have stakes that are interesting for a child with the parent in the room that they can't also fix. Exactly. And also, it's very helpful to have a parent missing. Let's take The Wizard of Oz. Now, Dorothy could have been living with her parents um, because she's living with her Auntie M and Uncle Henry, but her hidden need, the emotional need that drives her in that story, the thing that's met at the end of the story is the fact that she's living on the farm and doesn't want to be there in the beginning of the story. She goes out and sings somewhere over the rainbow. Get me out of here. I'm not happy on this farm. <laughs> and uh, she tries to run away. And we're never told what happened to Dorothy's parents. But you don't live with your aunt and your uncle if everything's cool with mom and dad. So she has this hidden need about accepting her altered circumstance and going to the farm where she is loved and cared for and accepting that as her new home. So a lot of times the absence of parents, especially in a children's story, creates an emotional need that is very useful in character development. Okay, so... As you begin to work on your plot for your book, you add characters only as you absolutely need them. For instance, the novel I'm working on right now is about a young girl, and she has a mom and a dad, and that's important because something happens to the dad, which affects everybody. Um, and I thought, do I give her siblings? No because I want to deal with my main character. I don't want to deal with the effects of what happens to the dad on Tommy and Susie and Sally and Joe Bob. Uh, that's too much. It's too much. And the more you dilute your reader's involvement with too many characters, the less strong, the weaker that bond your reader's going to have with that character becomes. So to, for the strongest bond between character and reader, 
You just need to cut out all the other people and just really focus it on that. And uh, to jump in here, I think a common thing that happens in the editing process is combining characters. Absolutely. You have a character in act one who's you added to solve a specific problem or to have a specific kind of conversation uh, with the protagonist. Then you have another character in act two that's doing something else. And you're like, you know what? People are multifaceted and they can do more than one thing, right? They can ask hard questions in act one and they can also, you know, knock on the door asking what's going on in act two. And um, often when you see a book uh, converted to screen, it's one of the most common things that they do in simplifying the story to resonate with more audiences is they combine characters. And there's no reason why you can't ask that same question. If the, If Hollywood were to do a screenplay, which characters would they combine? And it doesn't mean you should combine them, but... It may help you realize, oh, maybe I don't need this many names. Because I will say, as somebody who's bad with names, mm-hmm. I have a hard time keeping up with character names. And I have read The Wheel of Time, which has, uh, I believe, 86 named protagonists. So your oh rule of my. like, a story can only have one protagonist. I'm like, you obviously don't write epic fantasy. <laughs> These no. <are> 86 <laughs> point of view characters. And that is not to mention all of the side characters. Obviously, many of them are side characters in each other's stories. But this is, you know, I don't know, 5,000 pages worth of story across all of these volumes. Very complicated uh, story to tell. And, you know, the more you simplify the number of characters, the more stupid people like me, you can keep reading your books and uh, paying attention with what's going on. Exactly. You said 86 protagonists. You meant 86 point of view characters, right? Yeah, technically, there's only the four protagonists. Okay, um, okay. I was going to say 86. That that sounds impossible. It well, they're kind of famous for being a bit unwieldy. <laughs> okay, all right. Storytelling. Well, that, that would be that would make sense. <laughs> so you're exactly right. In fact, that was one of my next points. Here is um, if you have characters that are extraneous, um, just merge them. If they have to do something, if you have Sally doing something and uh, Joe Beth doing something in the next chapter. Well, why can't Sally do both things? I mean, just have her be there. And it's funny, you were talking about the movie adaptations. You know, Scarlett O'Hara lost two children. They just never happened in the movie. And why did they end up on the cutting room floor? Because nothing significant happened with those two children. The child that made it into the movie, uh, Bonnie Blue Butler, uh, it was she was significant because she died, and her death uh, was what tore Scarlet and Rhett apart. So, sorry, that's one of my favorite stories. So, yeah, and when one more example of this being done in the book, in the original book Dune, there's this character Gurney Halleck who's the bard. He's the one who's quoting scripture at random times to the characters or quoting poetry, but he's also the weapons trainer. And it'd have been very easily to have the weapons trainer be a character and have the bard be a character. If this was Wheel of Time, that's exactly what would have happened. In fact, uh, in Wheel of Time, there is a character, and all he is is just the bard. But by making Gurney Halleck both the bard and the weapons trainer, it makes mm-hmm. him a much more interesting character because now he has two different aspects of his personality. He's this warrior poet. like He is kind of a classic warrior poet where he's both the warrior and the poet, and by combining those two roles into one person, he's now a really compelling side character. And even though he's not in very many scenes in the novels when he is there you're like this he he brings out all of the other characters in really interesting ways very good good and you know one thing you have to do is all right i've already said that this 
these other characters that are in your story need to have something to do with the protagonist. They need to be involved with him, past, present, or future. I mean, you could introduce one who we're not going to meet until chapter 20. Uh, Let me back up. We're going to meet him in chapter two, but he's not going to interact with the protagonist until chapter 20. That's fine. Dean Koontz does that a lot. But um, these characters need to, at some point, intersect with your protagonist, or the reader's going to be thinking, who is this person and why am I even reading about him? Um, So you need to give your character a friend. Not necessarily a buddy, because we've all read buddy stories and seen buddy movies, um, but he needs somebody he can bounce ideas off of, somebody who can give him advice. Sometimes that is a mentor, uh, sometimes called the wise old man or the wise old woman. Um, But, you know, after something happens, something significant, some great loss, some great joy, your this character your main character needs somebody to talk to to tell about it to get their reactions their cautions their warnings it also makes the story more visceral because you're moving the story from happening inside someone's head to happening through dialogue uh, so my wife and i are watching monk right now it's a tv show about a detective and in this show he has this sidekick assistant who comes along with him who is not a detective. And from a storytelling perspective, her only role is to keep the show from being monk walking around a crime scene, silently <laughs> looking at things, <laughs> right? It's like it'd be a really boring show and they need someone who's not an expert to ask the stupid questions as a stand in for the audience. So now the, you know, Sherlock Holmes needs, um, Dr. Um, Watson, Dr. Watson to talk to, right? Dr. Watson needs to be the one to ask the stupid questions so that Sherlock Holmes can explain to us the reader. So we don't feel talked down to it's Dr. Watson who's being talked down to. And he's actually a really smart guy, right? But, but having that second character in the room moves it from all happening in Sherlock Holmes's head, which is a scary place to visit Mm -hmm. to happening in the room in real life. So you can hear it and feel it and makes it uh, more a visceral experience reading the book. And it makes it more of a page turner, right? Because that thinking in the head, that's a paragraph, but dialogue is back and forth and it opens up the page. So now they're flipping pages faster and they feel like, wow, I flipped a lot of pages. This is a really entertaining book. And all that happened was that you added a side character strategically to a scene. Yes. And Watson serves another function that's very important in a mystery. Um, when you set out to choose your point of view in telling a story in the novel, you can choose first person, second person, which is weird, which hardly hardly anybody ever chooses second person, or third person, which is detached. Third person is he, she walked into the room. First person is I walked into the room. Now, if you chose first person for Sherlock Holmes, when you are writing in first person, or reading it, you expect to have access to every thought, realization, and understanding that is in the protagonist's head. But a mystery is a puzzle. It's a race between you and the detective to figure out who committed the crime. So if you, as a reader, had access to everything in Sherlock Holmes's head, there would be no race because you would be figuring it out, reading his thoughts. It would be given away to you the entire time. That is why it's Watson who relates the stories 
because he does not have access to what's in Holmes's head, and therefore the reader is kept at arm's length from the actual deductions and calculations that are going on. So, point of view, these extra characters, they come in very handy to keep the puzzle going, to keep the mystery alive throughout the course of the book. I love that. And it's all about picking the amount of tension and picking the amount of information that you want to convey. And there's more than one way to Starbucks and there's more than one way uh, to tell a story. I know in Christian fiction, uh, most Christian uh, novelists lean really heavily on the third person limited omniscient uh, or, or limited third person limited point of view. And as somebody who just read Dune and preparation for the movie. So I know uh, those of you listening to this, the movie's come out and you have, I imagine, strong opinions about the movie. As we record this, the movie has not come out. And so all of my comments are about the book. Uh, Dune is written, written in omniscient, head-hopping point of view. You get into everyone's heads and it is incredible. And it's sold millions of copies. It's a classic. And it quote-unquote breaks all the rules because a lot of people say don't head-hop. There's a way to do it. Uh, and you can have side characters and you get into their head. Um, but it's hard to do. And I think that, that I don't want to turn this into a POV conversation, but I think that is an element of side characters. When do you jump into that side character's head and you see the scene through their eyes rather than seeing the scene just through the protagonist's eyes? Okay. When you consider your supporting cast and point of view, lately I have been writing mostly in first person because I wrote I write mostly for women readers. There's massive applause over here. I also love first person <laughs> point of view, by the way. <laughs> I do, because it's so intimate and you can give your reader exactly what your character is thinking and feeling. You don't want to go like a stream of consciousness where they think about everything under the sun. But, you know, the key thoughts and the key moments and that sort of thing. Um I try to limit my point of view characters, my number of point of view characters, to less than the fingers on my hand, of course, which is five, because I discovered, quite by accident, I once wrote a novel that had three equally balanced point of view characters. Now, one of them was the main protagonist. She was definitely carrying the story. The story started and ended with her, but she had two sisters, and I also made them first-person point of view characters. And I was reading the Amazon reviews of that book, and I kept running across this comment. I don't know which sister I liked best. I found it hard to bond with any of them. And I thought, Angie, you shot yourself in the foot. Because if I had picked one and had just one first-person point of view characters and written the other two in third, which is permissible... um. I think they would have bonded with the, the first-person point-of-view character. But by doing it the way I did it, I split my reader's loyalty three ways instead of just one. So, yep. um, yeah. The, the way to do that, if you do want to have three really likable characters, is the Marvel method, where you make those characters likable to different kinds of people, right? You're either a Captain America person or you're an Iron Man person, right? Like you may like them both, but you have a preference and somebody else may have a different preference and it gives the fans something to talk about and to debate. What you don't want is exactly what you're talking about. It was like, well, I like Captain America, Iron Man and Thor all about the same. It's like, no, yeah, no, they got to be yeah. different enough. <laughs> where Like there's something about like, let's be honest, nobody likes Thor the best, but you know, maybe somebody, <laughs> you can send your angry emails to Thomas at authormedia.com. <laughs> 
Um, no, but that's a really good point of, of balancing because that's a, a sometimes what will happen in a story is a side character ends up being more interesting than the protagonist. Yes, and that should never happen. And it won't happen as long as you keep the person in the story as he relates to the main character. But never forget this. This is a key point. Your supporting character must have a reason for being in the story. He can't just be like his only function is to be there when the protagonist needs him or her. They still have lives. They have jobs they have to go to. They have, they might have families. They've got to be home by seven o'clock. And this can work really well when you're trying to come up with complications that keep your protagonist from reaching his goal. Maybe the guy he has to go target shooting with has to be home by five o'clock because the wife will have dinner ready, which makes it harder for your protagonist. So, um, remember to give your supporting characters lives of their own. But make sure that those lives don't overrule or overshadow the problem and the life of your protagonist. And I heard Michael Haig once. He was talking about um, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks in You've Got Mail. And he said, the point of his point was, well, boy, that was a bad sentence. He said, why did they fall in love with each other other than the fact that they are cute and they're the movie leads? And I was with a bunch of writers as we were listening to him speak. And, and I thought, well, why did they fall in love? Because they really didn't even get to know each other until kind of the end. And then they started to kind of like each other. But what was this... So anyway, you have to, if you're writing a romance or a story with a romantic subplot, give these characters a real reason to fall in love. They have to see qualities in the other person that move them, that elicit their admiration, that, you know, make them fall in love, not just because they're cute and they happen to be in the same book together. (laughs) That's such a classic Hollywood thing, though. It's like all you need is to be physically attractive. The good guys are always the beautiful ones, and the bad guys are always the ugly ones. <laughs> it's like a re- it's a shorthand Hollywood storytelling technique, and it really is a lie, right? Because there are many yes. beautiful evil people, and there are many people who are not attractive who are quite virtuous and and praiseworthy, and and yet if you're getting your morality from Hollywood. You start to believe it. It's like, oh, I need to be more beautiful so I can be more virtuous, so I can be more lovable. And this is an opportunity for you as an author to fight against those lies by doing exactly what you said and, and making somebody appealing in something other than just their physical attraction. It doesn't mean all your characters have to be ugly, but yeah. that doesn't have to be the most important aspect about them. Well, and in fact, when I'm writing my characters, and remember, I usually am writing in first person, um, I don't describe them. Because, first of all, I think the reader's going to do that. But secondly, if you're writing in first person, it's so tacky to say, I held up my hand mirror and looked at my sparkling blue eyes and my shiny blonde hair. I mean, nobody does that. Nobody says that. That's not realistic. So occasionally, I might have another character say something like, well, if I was as cute as you, I wouldn't have any problems. But then I immediately have the protagonist say, cute as in the eye of the beholder, hun. Let's move on. (laughs) You know, I mean, because 
You know, my husband and I have subscribed to Acorn TV, which is all British. And I have been so impressed by the fact that their leads are ordinary looking people. And I love that. In all the dramas we've been watching, ordinary looking people, nobody that uh, looks picture perfect or super polished or Hollywoodish in any way. I, I think they're all attractive, but they're not like, you know, jaw-dropping, drop-dead gorgeous. And I find that really nice. I, I suspect that in the UK, they hire on acting ability first. And then if you're attractive, so much the better. It, Isn't that rather... amazing? What a concept! <laughs> um, but, you know, they all grew up on Shakespeare, so you, they learn acting at a really young age. Um, so now going back to the side characters being too interesting, right? And you're balancing this romantic interest. Have you ever gotten to the point where you're writing a story and you realize I have picked the wrong protagonist? I picked somebody who's not the most interesting person in my story. Do you rewrite it to make them more interesting or do you ever rewrite it where suddenly the side, you're telling the side character story instead of your initial protagonist? That has happened to me in my last two books because your protagonist is the one who changes the most at the end, who has an epiphany and makes a change. And so um, that happened in my last book. And the way I changed it is I just went back and rewrote it. And I had this character tell the story. So it really shifted dramatically. And it's also tending to happen in my current book, which is about the teenage girl, as I've mentioned, and her grandmother, who she goes to live with after this thing happens to the dad. And I'm finding that the teenager's story is more dramatic and more emotional because teenagers are more dramatic and more emotional. <laughs> and um, I'm having to be very careful and deliberately make a point of, making the fact that this is really the grandmother's story because my readers are going to be the grandmother's age. They're going to be mothers, not... This book is not written for teenage girls. So, um, yeah, you have to be really careful. And But they're both going to change, but it's really got to be the grandmother's story. And so I'm going to have to make a decided, deliberate effort to make sure that stays the case. Have you seen the movie Saving Mr. Banks? Yes. So for those of you who haven't seen it, this is a story about the making of Mary Poppins. And when Disney was making the original Mary Poppins, Mary Poppins was the protagonist. She was the main character, and it was all about the children. And uh, he brings in the author of the original book to consult on the project. So she had signed off, but not fully. I, I don't remember exactly the details. And she hated the story. And he kept trying to understand why she hated the film as he was making it. And what you finally realize is that the protagonist of Mary Poppins is actually Mr. Banks. He's the one who goes through the transformation. He wants a nice ordered life where everything is just as it's supposed to be. And his children are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. And they're being seen and not heard. And Mary Poppins, who's the hero is the antagonist. She's the one who's bringing chaos into his life. And it's the children who are the side characters. <laughs> they're not, they're not a main character. Uh, which, for me, watching this, I'm like, but as a child watching this, I always related to those children. I thought they were the focus, but they're not, actually. From a core storytelling perspective, they are the object of desire. They're almost the MacGuffin, not actually the protagonist or the antagonist. Exactly. 
I've been teaching plotting for years before Saving Mr. Banks came out. And I always mention several movies in class and elicit responses and say, who's the, who's the protagonist of The Wizard of Oz? And they always say Dorothy. They don't say the wizard. They say Dorothy. And I say, who's the protagonist in um, the, uh, uh, the Hills Are Alive? Who's that? Sound of Music. Sound of Music. And they always say, Maria. And I say, that's right. And I say, who's the protagonist in Mary Poppins? And they all say, Mary Poppins. And I say, no. Who's the one who changes? Who's the one who learns a lesson? And then they slowly figure it out. Yeah, the protagonist is the person who um, changes the most and learns a lesson. Before we run out of time, I need to talk about a couple of other important sidekicks that every story needs. And one is an antagonist and the other is the, the villain. Now, Every story does not have to have a villain. A villain is a guy who's evil or a woman who's evil and who deliberately sets out to do bad things. An antagonist is anyone who stands in the way of your protagonist's goal. For instance, I wrote a book about this woman who inherits a funeral home and she wants to get the mortuary business going and, and live there. But her mother wants her to move back up to Virginia and live with her because she wants to be close to her grandkids. So her mother loves her daughter and loves the grandkids and wants to, she goes down to Florida with them to help, but she's the antagonist because every time the main character says, you know, I think I could go to mortuary school and the mother's like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. She's being an antagonist, but she changes so the antagonist doesn't have to stay the antagonist the whole book. It's just that at key points or at certain places in the story, she's bound and determined to stop the protagonist from moving toward her goal. And it can be for just a single scene. A classic example of this is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, Edmund has run off to the White Witch. He's told her where his siblings are. They're staying with the beavers. The beavers realize it. They know the wolves are coming to get them and they need to set out so that they don't get eaten by the wolves. And Mrs. Beaver is like, no, I need to pack all these things. <laughs> and in the BBC version, they really draw this out. And they're like, we need to go. We need to go. And they keep cutting to the wolves and they're running closer and closer. And Mrs. Beaver is like grabbing all these things and not leaving the house, right? The protagonists really want to leave. And what's stopping them? It's not the white witch. It's not the wolves. It's not the villains. It's their friend. It's their ally mrs beaver who has a different goal than they do and i think that that's what makes uh having a side character as an antagonist interesting and how you can do it for short periods of time right they don't come to hate her right like it's not like they're like oh we got to kill mrs beaver so we can escape right it's the wrong <laughs> solution <laughs> but um giving your side characters something that they want as well i think is uh helpful in making them more interesting but also in causing them to get in the way from time to time with what your protagonist wants. Absolutely. So, like I said, you, these side characters need goals. They need families. They have to have a reason for being involved in your story. Now, as far as friends, you can add other friends into the story, not too many, but have you ever noticed that a friendship of three is always um, frictional at times? Maybe it's just women, Maybe it's men, too. I don't know, Thomas. Do three men get along very well? Three women. Yeah, I was going to say, 
I don't know if that's true in my world. Three three guys can get along pretty well, or, or <laughs> five. I, I feel like uh, odd uh, numbers are good for y'all, yeah. though, huh? <laughs> well, I've noticed that whenever you have three women, now they may all get along fine for months, but then there'll be one little something where one gets jealous, or one gets resentful, or one takes one out to lunch and doesn't take the other, and then you've got all this friction. And what does friction? Friction equal drama. And what is fiction all about? Drama. So if you want to mix things up, if you want to add another complication for your protagonist, bring in a new friend and watch the pot start to boil. It it will happen. It's easy to make that happen. Now, when you're um, developing these characters, these signed characters and, and bringing them in, do you give them their own arcs do they have their own beginning middle and end like when do you know um how much because you have a side character who's here for just a little bit you can have a side character who's here for the whole story how do you know whether to give them an arc or do you give your uh, side characters arcs if they are a major character not the main character but still a major character then yes i do a little plot skeleton for them because they at the very least they need a goal and they need some complications in their goal. And that gives them a life. It gives them a reason to be in the story. It gives the protagonist an opportunity to be helpful, encouraging, um, derogatory. Um, it just gives you more opportunities for drama, which is always good. Now, um, Vogler, Chris Vogler, who did The Writer's Journey... Yes, The Writer's Journey, which is the, a take on the Joseph Campbell story of the hero's journey, has come up with some story archetypes. Now, you do not have to have all of these types of characters in your story, but they are very useful for thinking about possibilities. So he mentions, number one is the mentor, the wise old woman or man who guides and teaches. Think of Yoda in Star Wars. A lot of times this mentor character will give the main character a gift, especially if it's like fantasy. It can be in a woman's fiction novel. It could be a locket that belonged to the protagonist's great-grandmother that has a beautiful family motto inscribed inside it or something. In Star Wars, it was a lightsaber. Um, they give this character a gift that's going to aid them on the future journey. The second archetype, which we've already mentioned, is the ally or buddy. And you can also add in enemies. Um, as your character starts out on their path, they may make some enemies uh, along the way. People who just look at them and don't like them, you know, and then act out of that. Another archetype is the herald. This is someone who announces the coming change. A lot of times you see the herald at the inciting incident. You know, most stories open with a, your main character in his ordinary world, dealing with a problem that's interesting enough to catch the reader. And then suddenly something big happens. The kidnapping, the bumping into the cute love interest, the explosion, the death in the family, something happens that's going to send the story in another direction. And sometimes it's the herald that announces this. It's the sister-in-law who shows up and says, my goodness, you've been 
inherited a castle in England. And so everybody goes off to England. Um, the trickster is another archetype who can provide the comic relief. A lot of times, well, Shakespeare always had a, a trickster slash jester um, who provided comic relief, but yet also would spout words of wisdoms and say pretty wise things in the plays. A shapeshifter is the friend who appears to be a friend, but is really a spy or a false friend or someone who's going to turn on your main character. I remember that um, that movie, I think it's called Along Came a Spider, which is based on a novel. Seems like it's on TV every other night. But there's a false, I think she's an FBI agent or she, anyway, she's supposed to be helping Morgan Freeman solve the crime. But in reality, she's a bad guy. Um, there's a threshold guardian. You know, as your character is going out on his journey to achieve the goal, whatever it is, he has to go through steps and stages to get there. And there will be people who can be saying, stop, no, you cannot progress forward. It could be someone he's not forgiven. It could be somebody holding a sword who's threatening to kill him. It could be, you know, it depends on your genre and what your plot is. But these are people who deliberately provide an obstacle for your main character. And then there's um, the shadow. The shadow is a character who represents the allure of the qualities the hero must renounce in order to reach his goal. So for instance, if you're writing a story about a drug addict who sets out, goes to rehab to kick his addiction, then at three quarters of the way through the novel, you could have his old, the, his old friend he used to do drugs with show up at his house looking for a fix uh, he goes out and scores something and then, you know, offers the buddy here, have have some of this, share this with me. You know, he's the one that tries to lure your main character back to the way he was before and to stop all his forward motion. So those are architects, uh, ar architects, archetypes that um, might be useful to you as you consider the people that you want to populate your novel. And think of these archetypes as like a pantry full of ingredients. You don't want to cook every book with every ingredient, but picking a couple of good archetypes can be really useful. And I want to give you one more tool to think of your side characters, and it's from the world of role-playing games. So role-playing games, if you're not familiar, it's an interactive story. So you have like a story leader, and they're telling a story, and then the different people play different characters in the story, and from time to time you roll dice to see what happens uh, and you keep the story going and to help novice storytellers tell useful stories uh, the character that they create has an alignment and this alignment is on two axes so one axis is good and evil this is a pretty straightforward axis we all understand good and evil but to make it interesting the other axis is lawful and chaotic so somebody like darth vader is arguably lawful evil Right. He is under authority. He is following the law as it is. And he is doing evil things with the law and the authority that he has. Whereas somebody like the Joker is chaotic evil. He's just doing evil for evil's sake and he's following no laws. And this gives you 
an opportunity to create some really interesting conflict, right? So you have in Lord of the Rings, you have the hobbits, who I'd say are uh, lawful good or perhaps neutral good, uh, and they come to the tree ants, and the tree, tree ants are true neutral. They're neither good nor evil, and they don't really follow anyone's laws, but they don't disobey the laws for their own sake either, right? They're like, we're on no one's side because no one is on our side. And the hobbits are trying to convince these true neutral side characters, please help us in fighting the evil characters, right? Because it's for your own benefit, and they decide not to, and then they decide to, and it creates a really fun conflict. And it's not the traditional good versus evil conflict, and it gives you kind of a new way of setting up your characters. And I know I know this is more common in the fantasy sci-fi world, but I, I would love it if you romance writers were to take this tool of alignment and create different alignments with your characters. Because if they're all lawful good, you miss out on all kinds of opportunities for some fun conflict, right? You have a lawful good person who follows the rules and does the right thing. Then you have a chaotic good person who does the right thing regardless of whether it breaks the rules or not, right? There's a lot of fun for conflict, right? They're both wanting to do good, but the way they're wanting to do good is very different. And it can be very interesting, right? Do you do you break the window to reach in to save uh, the child inside, right? It's like, well, it's against the law, but we've got to do the good thing, and it creates some fun conflict. It's a, a terrible example, but I encourage you to take the alignment chart with each of your side characters and try to create some diversity where they're not all in the same box. That should be available like in a deck of cards so you could pick one from the <laughs> lawful box and, and just put things together. That'd be fun. Or in the true uh, role-playing way, roll some dice. <laughs> you roll a dice, and if it's one, it's lawful good. If it's two, it's neutral good, and you just find out, right? That's the classic uh, role-playing way uh, to solve problems. And I know authors actually solve plot problems like that, where they'll cast lots to see if a character you know, survives a situation or not and, and adds a level of uncertainty. I, I don't know if that I would recommend that for most authors, but I, I do know of some authors who do that. Cool. Have you have you played around with that at all? The alignment of side characters? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my nerdy side is showing here a little bit. <laughs> I don't. I don't think my genre is very well suited for it, but that's okay. Everybody's pretty lawful in uh, romance world, I imagine. Yeah. Um, so, and, and this is a good point, right? Knowing your genre and knowing the, what the reader expectations are. Right? If everyone wants everyone following the law. In your stories, you need to know that, right? If you've got a an Amish story and, and you have somebody who's chaotic good, they're not going to fit well in the Amish community. And so unless that's the point of the story, it may not work well. Uh, but what are so, we're almost out of time, but t- tell some pitfalls. What are some mistakes that you see authors making when they're putting their side characters together and adding them to the story? Ah, uh, well, I can tell this story. I was once at a writer's conference and... You know, sometimes they'll give you a 15-minute appointment and someone comes and sits with you and describes their book. And they're supposed to be, I think, wanting advice. So this lady sat down and she said, "Um, my book is about this woman who's kidnapped. And I said, oh, I said, so it's about how she spends her time throughout the whole book trying to escape? And she said, oh, no, no, because her boyfriend is a cop and he's trying to rescue her. And I said, oh, So he's the protagonist, and it's all about how he's trying to rescue her. And she said, oh, no, because there's a lawyer, and he's trying to help the cop, and they're trying to figure out what's happening with the bad guys. And and I said, okay, stop stop right there. 
I said, because you've lost me, because you haven't settled on who your protagonist is. And so that is probably the number one problem I see with beginning writers is they start writing the story and they're sort of infatuated with every character and they want to tell every character's story. But it's it's a morass because you don't know who the story is about. You don't know who the main character is. So that is the first thing you need to do. I remember once I was reading a book by Donald Moss, who's uh, a New York agent and sort of a guru of novel writing, and he mentioned ensemble casts. And I thought, oh, I'd like to try an ensemble cast. So I wrote this story and had six main characters, six protagonists, if you will. And I was going to his advanced writer's workshop where you take a completed manuscript and let him read some pages, and then you sit through his questions. He asks questions, and you write some stuff down and all that sort of thing. So when he met with me, he said, this isn't working. And I said, why? Why not? It's an ensemble cast. And he said, no. He said, even in an ensemble cast, one of those people has to be the main character. He said, if you leave it perfectly balanced, then you have to have six inciting incidents, six calls to adventure, six bleakest moments. Six. He said it becomes repetitive and boring because all of these characters are having the same sorts of things happen to them. And I realized he was absolutely right. So I took that book home, rewrote it completely, and it became so much more profound and moving because I chose... there was. Well, it's about these people, the six people, they are um, in a shipwreck and they wash up on this weird island. And um, so I chose the woman who had a teenage daughter and she was worried about her. So they figure out what has happened to them and it's something metaphysical. I'll just leave it at that. And um, then she realizes, can I ever reach my daughter? I don't want her to come to a place like this. And so the book ends with her sort of casting these bottles with messages in them out into the ocean, hoping that one of them will reach her daughter. So um, it gave the book a whole different slant. It gave it a whole different heart uh, and improved it a thousand percent. So don't get so enamored with all these different characters. Find the one who has the most change to make and the best story to tell where the real heart of the story is and make that your protagonist. I love that, right? X-Men needs Professor Xavier to be the most important X-Men, right? Because it's an ensemble story, but it's really about Professor Xavier. And you look at a story like The Avengers, and you're like, well, that's an ensemble story, and it's got all of these different plot lines. Like, yeah, but every single character in that movie has had their own movie. <laughs> they, all, exactly. they did have their inciting moment. They did have their their bleak time, right? They, they all have gone through the hero's journey. And it's why you really have to do your homework. Like, I've heard stories of people whose first ever Marvel movie was going and seeing an Avengers story. And they have no idea what's going on. They're like, the explosions yeah. were cool. And I'm really lost. And you don't <laughs> want your book to feel that way because all of your side characters are the main character in their own story. Uh, but I have to ask, what's the name of that book for people who are curious and want to read it? Oh, Uncharted. Uncharted by Angela Hunt. We'll have a link to that book in the show notes. 
And uh, Angie, where can people find out more about you and your other 149 books? Um, My website is AngelaHuntBooks.com. And uh, they're all there, thanks to Thomas's brilliant web design and my book table, which makes it so easy for me to add new books (laughs) as I write them. You keep writing them, keep adding them to your website. Uh, Any final tips or encouragement? Um, Just... Just this, you know, writing, I never set out to be a writer, never thought I would be a writer, never dreamed of being a writer or writing the great American novel. Still don't do that. Um, but it's not rocket science. It's, it's a craft. It's something you can learn. It takes a lot of work, a lot of practice and a lot of learning, but it's completely achievable if you're willing to put in the hours to make it work. And the rewards of completing and crafting a story that will change other people's hearts and lives and give them hours of enjoyment, that's priceless. Our sponsor today is the Christian Writers Market Guide. If you're wanting to find professionals who can help you in your writing journey, maybe you want to find a conference like the one Angela was talking about, or you're wanting to get an agent or an editor or a coach Or maybe you need a CPA. The Christian Writers Market Guide is the definitive source of everyone in the industry who is here to help you. And they are have been our sponsor for a long time. And you can find out more about the Christian Writers Market Guide at ChristianWritersMarketGuide.com. Angela Hunt, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Oh, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to The Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.